Good morning. It is a joy to have Brett back and to see him go again. I, I just thank the Lord that he has given us as a congregation this kind of opportunity at such a time and grateful uh, for Brett's willingness to travel, for the family's willingness to let him go. Uh, and uh, we'll look forward to a, a full report next week. I just want to say again, as I said in the first service, I'm so grateful for the ministry of our worship uh, team. Uh, powerful and this morning really preparing our hearts. In fact, if we were praying those words as we were singing them, then the Holy Spirit really has prepared our hearts uh, for what, um, what I believe He would have me share with you today. While I was growing up, my father, uh, one of my father's favorite stories either to tell or simply refer to uh, is the story about Wrong Way Corrigan. I don't know how many of you remember that story. It was before most of us were around, but it was repeated often. In 1938, Douglas Corrigan requested permission from the U.S. Bureau of Air Commerce uh, to fly nonstop from New York to Dublin, Ireland. And he asked for that because he wanted to do the same, the same route that his hero, Charles Lindbergh, had flown about 10 years earlier in 1927. So he flew nonstop from the West Coast where he lived to New York, and then he submitted his request, and the uh, Bureau denied his request. They looked at his airplane, which was old, in which he had rebuilt, and they decided that plane probably wouldn't survive, and so for uh, Corrigan's good, they felt they had to deny that request. So Corrigan uh, then submitted a new flight plan then to return nonstop to the West Coast, which was his home. And that, of course, was approved. So on July 17, 1938, um, Corrigan took off from New York and not sure where he headed, but I know where he landed was in Ireland. And according to his later accounts, he said, well, when I took off, the, the clouds were, it was heavy with clouds. I got confused and I started flying in the wrong direction. And then when the clouds cleared, all that was underneath me was water. And I thought, I better keep flying in the direction I'm going so I can find land because I don't know where I am. And 28 hours later, he found land, Ireland, and he landed. And apparently the first thing he said when he jumped off the plane and people came out to greet him is he said, uh, uh, just got in from New York. Where am I? <laughs> so he, uh, that flight earned him the nickname Wrong Way. And the funny thing is he actually stuck to his I just got lost explanation for how he flew solo over the Atlantic for his entire life. Uh, I can't imagine he couldn't do that without winking occasionally, but he never fessed up, uh, so apparently he got lost. Um, so whatever else we take away from the story, one of the things we learn is that a very well-written flight plan submitted before the flight doesn't always indicate where the plane is going to come down. And sometimes church mission statements can suffer the same fate. 
just because we have a well-written mission statement doesn't mean we'll necessarily get where we say we want to go. Often such statements are purposely neglected or more often distractedly neglected. And I want to remind us this morning that it's important for us. We believe the elders have trusted the Lord in developing this. We'll talk a little bit about the statement this morning. Believing the way in which God has led us. And while Wrong Way Corrigan is good for a laugh, I don't you just wish you could sometime in your life have that opportunity to get that lost on some issue? And then, uh, yeah, it's just, I just get a kick out of that. But what I wouldn't get a kick out of is if upon the Lord's return, we haven't been moving in the direction that our Lord Jesus has called us. And I would hate for him in his mind to think of us as wrong way Bible church. So I want us to consider some, a key point of our mission statement. And the elders have shaped Calvary's mission statement around uh, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, and we're going to read that together in just a minute so you can turn there. But the elders have worked prayerfully and diligently in developing our purpose statement based on Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Pastor Brett, uh, some time ago, introduced that to us as a congregation and preached through our mission and vision and value statement. Uh, but if all it was was that and a few posters around the building, I think we won't harvest the great riches that God desires for us as a church. Now, in just a moment, we're going to read uh, this together, and we have a number of different translations, but I looked in the New American Standard, the English Standard, uh, ESV, yeah, ESV, and the uh, New King James, which I think cover the vast majority of us, those three, and they're all pretty close together. So I think we could all read from whatever translation we have as we read together these words, and we won't confuse each other too much. Uh, so let's stand together, and let's read Matthew 28, 18 to 20 together. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, beginning in 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, that was pretty good. I hope we didn't confuse each other too much. Please be seated. So based on those verses, the elders have articulated our mission statement. It is that Calvary Bible Church exists to multiply disciples who glorify God by going to all peoples, gathering in community, and growing in Christ. And that comes right from Matthew 28, multiplying disciples. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples. And then he says, teaching them to observe all that I have taught you, which includes making disciples. So a biblical definition of discipleship is always a multiplying definition. Disciples are always multiplied when we're doing biblical discipling. Going to all peoples. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations or all peoples. And often we hear that in the term, in, in the context of missions, of going somewhere else, going to where there is no church. But this, this doesn't simply mean people's way over there somewhere. Going to all peoples is as local a command as it is global. So where there is no church, we send people to those places to initially begin the process of disciple-making and church planting. But where the church exists, where Calvary Bible Church exists, we pursue intensely the command that Jesus gives us to make disciples. We do that here. Kalamazoo is our area of responsibility. We are to be making disciples here all peoples in the Kalamazoo area. Then gathering in community. Matthew 28 says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is the, is the practice of the church to recognize and bring into fellowship those who have been converted. It's interesting, as far as I'm aware, I can't find anywhere in the Bible where believers are individually told to be baptized. The command is given to the church to make sure that every disciple is baptized. So every disciple is to be baptized, but it's the responsibility of the church to do that because baptism is something the church does as we gather into community. And then growing in Christ, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. So we grow in Christ as a congregation as we learn to observe all that Christ has commanded us as, as disciples. And as we look both at Matthew 28 and at our mission statement, aside from the name of God, the key word in both, both passages or both statements is the word disciple. You, it, you take the word disciple out in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, 18 to 20, doesn't make sense. You remove disciple, doesn't make sense. You remove disciple from our mission statement, our mission statement makes no sense. So it's a key word. So what's it mean to make a disciple? What is a disciple? If we're to make them, we should know what they are, right? I need to figure that one out. So my goal this morning is not simply to define disciple. My goal this morning is to increase each of our each and within our own hearts, to increase that hunger to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to long to follow Him, and then have some understanding of what we might do next in order to grow toward that. So both in the English and in the Greek, pretty basic meaning for the word disciple. Disciple means a student. It means a follower, one who follows someone else. It's an apprentice. It's someone who works alongside someone else to see how they do it so they can learn how to do it. It means apprentice. It means learner. It means imitator. Someone who watches so closely that they begin to do it themselves. And in all cases, it's not with a theory or with a system or anything like that. It's with a person. It's with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And what's the final phrase in those verses? And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
Jesus Christ is present with us. It's not like we're trying to be disciples of Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln said and did some wonderful things. Abraham Lincoln died tragically. Abraham Lincoln is buried and dead. Now, I hope that someday we will be able to see him. I think from what I've read about his life, I think we probably will. But right now, Abraham Lincoln is not walking with anybody that thinks they're a disciple of Abraham Lincoln. He's not here. But Jesus is. Jesus is here. Lo, I am with you always. No moment that he is not present with us. So when we are to follow somebody, there is a living person we are to be following. Discipleship is primarily relationship. The primary goal of discipleship is not a system of theology. It is not a set of religious practices. It is not conformity to a moral code. That's not the primary thing that discipleship is about. Discipleship is about relationship with a living God. Now, I will tell you, theology, spiritual disciplines, and morality are all inseparable from discipleship. You can't be a disciple without those things, but they are not the end toward which we go. The end toward which we press is to know and love and imitate Jesus Christ. It's a relationship. Jesus himself told us that. He was asked the question. Now, the question wasn't, what do I need to do to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? But it was essentially that same question in Matthew 22, verse 36, when a Pharisee came to Jesus. And he said to Jesus, which is the great commandment in the law? Tell me the most important law to keep so that I will be an approved follower of God, a disciple. And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Teacher, what is the most important part of the law? Is it the study and the ordering of Scripture? Is it the keeping of the ritual religious practices? Is it the obedience to the moral code? What's most important? Most important is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. It is the foremost commandment for every disciple to love the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a relationship with God himself. A disciple is one who is intentionally learning to know, love, and imitate Jesus. I love, uh, right now, uh, Linda's mom is living with us, and, and uh, one of the things that we do is we, we will sing hymns to her, and she's not always clear enough to understand what's going on, but sometimes she'll join in on two or three of them, and one of them that she loves, and I have come to love more and more. And you all will know this and join with me. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, 
How I love Jesus. Why? Because he first loved me. See, discipleship is a love relationship between two living people, the disciple and Jesus. So, a disciple, and if you're taking notes, this would be the one note I hope you would walk away with at least. A disciple is one who is intentionally learning to know, love, and imitate Jesus. A disciple is one who is intentionally learning to know, love, and imitate Jesus. One who knows Jesus, well, as He has revealed Himself to us. And as I mentioned before, we can't remove the knowledge of this book from true discipleship. This is how He has made Himself known to us. It is in the Word how He has revealed Himself to us. We can know what Jesus believed, and we need to know that. We need to know what Jesus considered truth. What does Jesus believe? It's part of being a disciple. If we're going to follow Him, we need to first know what He believes. And this book is full of telling us what Jesus believed. But one example of that might be he know, Jesus knows, He knew then as a man, that God is absolutely sovereign. His Father is absolutely sovereign. That would be one thing that we could look at and say, if you look at the life of Jesus, you can see that. That's what he believed. John 19, 10 and 11, he's at trial before Pilate, and Pilate says to him, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you, and I have the authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Now, there's a practical application of God's sovereignty. Jesus says, Pilate, you're not sovereign, and the Caesar you serve is not sovereign. God is sovereign. And any authority you exercise, you exercise because the sovereign God has given it to you. Jesus believed that God, the Father, was sovereign. We also need to know, if we would follow Him, we need to know what He values. And there's many values. We read through the Scriptures, we see things that Jesus values. We watch how He responds to different people, and we see what, what He stops and says, take notice. Look at that. And one of those things is humility. Matthew 18, verse 3, Jesus said, "'Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like little children,' you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, I value humility. When I see someone who's humble, I see someone, I see a value that they share that I highly value. So if we're going to follow Jesus, we, know, we need to know what He values, and we need, to know, we need to know what He does. We need to, as we follow Him, we say, what are the things that Jesus does? One of the things that Jesus does is that He forgives people. So in uh, the book of Mark, chapter 9, verse 2, <clears throat> they bring the paralytic to Jesus, 
And Jesus, seeing their faith, He says to the paralytic, take courage, my son, your sins are forgiven. Matthew 9, 2, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, one of the points here is that the paralytic's sin had been against whoever else it had been against. It had been against God, and only God can forgive that, and Jesus is forgiving. So there's Jesus is clearly demonstrating that He is God. But the, what I'd like us to see here is that what He values, what He does, what Jesus does is forgive people. That's, the, that's what Jesus does. And if we follow Him, if we walk with Him, we see what He does. And not only do we see what He does, okay, so we know, but we also love. We love Jesus we love what Jesus does. So, and we love what Jesus… So, um, Jesus, we talked about, Jesus believes that God is sovereign. And so, the disciple knows that, and the disciple loves that, loves that God is sovereign, and embraces that because Jesus embraced it, and because Jesus loved it, we want to love it. So, we not only know about the sovereignty of God because it's in the book, we believe and embrace the sovereignty of God even when we can't understand it. But the disciple is one who's walking so close with Jesus that he loves what Jesus loves, and he loves what Jesus values. Jesus values humility, so the disciple loves humility. And that's transforming. The disciple learns to hate pride, not so much in others, but in himself or in herself. The disciple loves what Jesus does. Jesus forgives people. Well, as disciples, if there's anything we can be thankful for that we can love, we can love the fact that he forgives, right? Because none of us would be Christians if he didn't forgive us. But His forgiveness is so much greater than just us. Jesus forgives anyone who will turn in repentance to Him, including our enemies. That's how great His forgiveness is. And He says, that's, if we follow close, that's the forgiveness we come to love, not just the forgiveness we've received, but the forgiveness He graciously gives to others. And we imitate Christ. The disciple knows, loves, and imitates Christ. See, behavior clarifies the truth of what we say we believe and what we hold in our mind and what we actually believe, what we hold in our heart, what has transformed our hearts. And our, usually what our profession of what we believe far outdistances well, how our hearts have been transformed and changed into the likeness of Jesus. And so God's changing that, but our, 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 our imitation or lack thereof reveals what's happening. Our outward behavior reveals just how much transformation has taken place in our hearts. So, in terms of what Jesus believes. Jesus believes in the sovereignty of God, so when he stands before Pilate, Jesus is not worried. You know, Pilate says, you should be trembling because it's up to me. 
If I say you're free, you're free. If I say you go to the cross, you go to the cross. Jesus says, oh, I'm not worried. You won't do anything my Father doesn't want you to do. You can't do anything. Jesus didn't fear because he actually trusted and believed in the sovereignty of God. And so as believers, do we embrace the reality of what Jesus believed? Are we his disciples? Do we know it? Do we love it? Do we imitate it? See, where there's fear, where there's worry, we are not imitating Jesus. And we're called to imitate him, what he knows. He knows what he believes. He believes that God is sovereign, and that transforms. What he values, he values humility. Do we imitate that? Do we imitate Christ in his humility? For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's what a humble person does. Do we love humility and do we imitate it as we serve those around us? It's an indicator. I, my own experience is that anger is often closely related to whatever it is people are not doing for us. We think they should be serving us and they don't and we get angry. We don't usually think of it that crassly, but we're pretty good at shaving the edges there and making it sound better than it is. But, but that's a matter of embracing what Jesus, of imitating a value that Jesus held. In his behavior, forgive those who have offended and hurt me. That's what Jesus did. And as we follow after him, as we know him, as we love him, and as we imitate him, one author, has just, one author has written that when Jesus hung on the cross and he cried out, my God, my God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That wasn't hard for Jesus. <coughs> Jesus was speaking out of who he was. Jesus was one who forgives people. What would have been hard for Jesus would have been to curse them because that wasn't in him. What was in him was forgiveness, and so what flowed out of him was forgiveness. Father, forgive. And that's the shaping of our own hearts, the transformation of our own hearts, that forgiveness would flow out of us. And this is the result of discipleship. <clears throat> we become like Christ. We don't forgive because we know we should forgive. We forgive because we have become forgiving people just like Jesus. We don't have to refrain from anger as we become like him. We are no longer angry people. We are no longer lustful people, no longer greedy, no longer proud, no longer fearful, no longer complaining people. We are changed from within. We become gracious people who are generous, who forgive. So Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruits. We know what's inside by what's being produced outside. 
So how do we actually get to know, love, and imitate Jesus, a Jesus that we can't see, we can't hear, and we can't touch? I mean, practically, how do we do that today? How do we get so close? How, do we, how are we in such habitual relationship with Jesus Christ that He is doing that refining work in us? He's doing that changing work in us. How do we do that? And I would like to suggest that there are two practices that we can, that, that put us in the place where Jesus Christ begins to transform our hearts to look like His. And the two practices, one would be spiritual disciplines, and the other is obedience. Now, I need to explain. By disciplines, what I'm saying, a discipline is intentional, prolonged observation of and meditation on Jesus Christ. So let me say that again. Discipline is, a, a discipline is an intentional, prolonged observation of and meditation on Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one, de one degree of glory to another. The transformation happens while we are gazing, while we are caught up with looking at Jesus as He is. Then He transforms our hearts. Then the outward behaviors change. And this is perhaps why true discipleship is so hard for us Americans. We are among the least contemplative, reflective, meditative people in all of history. We know little of silenced and focused thought. We are a people of action. We are a people of measurable results. We are a people of constant noise and constant action. We fear boredom. The last thing we want is to be left alone, just us and Jesus. And we rush to fill those empty places. Perhaps we fill those empty places with things that look more Christian than the unbeliever would. Sometimes I fear that we use Christian music just to keep us from actually being alone with our God. Maybe Christian sermons that we hear or Christian podcasts, videos, just anything. Please fill up the empty space. I find I walk into the kitchen in the morning to make the coffee, and the first thing I want to do is turn the radio on, hear what's happening, what happened overnight. I don't stop and just say, Lord, let me meditate. Let me use this time for quiet. Is there something you would be speaking to me about? He does that even over coffee grounds. So the disciplines are habits of intentional, prolonged observation of and meditation on Christ. And I, there's no time to unwrap 
all of the disciplines and what kinds of things we're talking about. But I want to just touch on, so what's he mean by discipline? The first one would be the Bible. First discipline is to be one who intakes the Bible, a person who's accustomed to listening to the Bible, not just people talk about the Bible, but listen to the Bible, read the Bible, study the Bible, memorize the Bible. If you want to think God's thoughts, memorize His words, because this is what He's thinking. When you are thinking the words of Scripture, you are thinking the words of God. When we are meditating on the implications and the truths of Scripture, when we're saying, God, help me understand, I've read a hard thing, what does this mean? And we meditate on it, we pray, and we study. That's the first of the disciplines, waiting on God and doing it long enough. Sometimes even in our Bible study, uh, we're just kind of rushing through it. We got the Bible study on Tuesday night or Tuesday morning, so I need to get this done so I can show up and have it finished. So even when we're doing study, there are times we need to discipline ourselves to slow down and listen. I had planned to cover so much of the Scripture each day and journal a prayer each day on it, and I found out God wasn't on my schedule. He needed a little more time than I had. Uh, And I argued with him on that for a little while. And there's a circumstance I can't add more time in the morning than I'm doing. So I thought, okay, I better start doing two mornings. I'll I'll just, as a matter of fact, three mornings. Whatever it takes, I'm going to wait until I have fellowship with God in this passage of Scripture before I go to the next passage. It's been my own journey to learn how to wait on God, not meditating with an empty mind, but consciously reading and praying over the Word of God. I'm sorry, I got stopped on the Word. We got to get going. Okay, but the Word is so essential if we would know and follow Jesus. Jesus said, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is these that testify of me. If we are going to follow Jesus, we need to be reading the Scriptures that testify of Him, and we need to be understanding them. So that's the first discipline. The next discipline is prayer, Mark 1.35. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Jesus was in the habit, if you read the Gospels, Jesus was in the habit of getting up and getting to quiet places and praying. That was the habit of His life. And if we would follow Him as faithful disciples, we will have that same habit because it's in that time with Him, as we join Him in prayer, He is transforming our hearts. Community, not simply getting together on a Sunday morning, but as we gather, seeking how do we stir one another up to love and to good deeds. John 17, 20. I love Jesus' prayer in 17, John 17. Verse 20 is one of my favorite ones because he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also believe in me through their word. Hallelujah. Jesus isn't just praying for those 11 guys. He's praying for every one of us that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ through their words. That's us. He's praying for you. He's praying for me. This is what he prays, that they may be one, even as you, Father, 
are in me and I in you, and they also in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Can you hear what he's saying? From eternity past, the triune God has lived in a perfected unity of being, so close together that we have three persons and one God, an intimate community. And Jesus says, God, I'm praying that they will enter into our fellowship. Into the fellowship of the Trinity. And that looks until we enter eternity, what that looks like is unity among us, that they may be one. That's what he calls us to in community. We need community if we would grow in Christ-likeness, if we would be following hard after Jesus. There's some others. I'm going to run past them there. Um, And I want to go to obedience. Like I said, obedience maybe could be called one of the uh, disciplines, but I want to pull it out separately because it may sound like a bit of a comp- con- contradiction to what I've already said. I, deci- divine, whew, I define discipleship as the process by which we intentionally learn to know, love, and imitate Jesus. And it's that imitation that's obedience. Imitating Him is obedience. We see what he does and we do it. We hear his command and we seek to do it. And Christ-honoring obedience is always a fruit of a transformed heart. But brothers and sisters, that doesn't mean that it's always easy. When I talk about our obedience growing out of a transformed heart, I don't want to give the impression that you just have a long enough quiet time and we'll come out into the world and look like Jesus. That transformation takes place over time, but there are times that I must choose to obey, and it is hard. And it is not legalism. In fact, true obedience, if you seek to walk in obedience to Jesus Christ, you will suck up more grace than you can imagine because you realize I can't do it apart from grace, only by grace. But it is hard. It is a choice to obey. So Jesus would say in John 14, 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. So I love that that cycle. You have his commandments. Out of love, you obey his commandments. And then because we obey the commandments, he further reveals himself, which is, calls for further obedience. And we respond in obedience and we go deeper until we come to a place perhaps we're not responding in obedience. That lack of obedience reveals an area in our lives which, in which we are not yet like Christ. And that should lead us to confession and repentance. You see, sin is the boundary marker of our love for Jesus. Sin is the boundary marker of our love for Jesus. See, because it's at that point I go, whoa, I've loved myself or I've loved somebody else or I've loved something else more than I love Jesus, and that's why I did that. That's the boundary of my love for Jesus. Tell you, when we talk about loving Jesus with a whole heart, those are always 
aspirational prayers for me, never statements of how much I love Jesus. I can sing songs about how much Jesus loves me. I know that. But how much I love Jesus, I know those boundary markers too well. I'm grieved by them. And so when we confess sin, it's not just, oh God, forgive me for this thing that I did, whatever that actual act was, and we need to repent of that actual sin. But also recognize, God, what that says is that's where an idol is. That's where I love something or someone more than I love you. My heart is still not yours. I haven't loved you with a whole heart, which is the first commandment. Oh, God, change me. Change me. Not just so I can have victory over a sin, but that I would be like Jesus. And when I am like Jesus, then I, walk, I will walk in obedience related to any given sin. So sins should certainly grieve us, but brothers and sisters, don't let them discourage you. They just give great contrast and distinction to where we love Jesus and where we don't. And as disciples, we want to know those things so that we can repent and allow him to change us. So a disciple is one who's intentionally learning to know, love, and imitate Jesus. Brothers and sisters, are you in that process? Are you learning to love Jesus? And we talked about the disciplines. Are you practicing those disciplines in your own life? The word, prayer, communion, community. Are you practicing those things? And if not, who could help you begin to practice those things? Remember, Jesus set it up so that one disciple would help another disciple who helps another. Perhaps you need to talk to a brother or sister and say, can you help me grow in this area? How about, how about obedience? Do you understand disobedience as the boundary markers of your love for Christ, turning you back to Jesus to seek his forgiveness, his cleansing, in His transforming work. Is there anyone in your life that could help you do that? Calvary Bible Church exists to multiply disciples. It is my prayer that we as a church would follow this flight plan, follow this mission statement, to multiply disciples who glorify God, Multiply disciples who glorify God by going to all peoples, gathering in community, and growing in Christ. A disciple is one who is intentionally learning to know, love, and imitate Jesus. Are you? Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for your goodness and grace to us. Thank you that Jesus is not dead and gone. He has not simply secured for us an eternity in your presence, which we will take eternity to say thank you for. But he has redeemed us. He is a living God now, so that we can begin now to follow. We can begin now to know, love, and imitate. And by your grace, may we be transformed into the likeness of the Jesus we follow. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.